you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Ngana and welcome to my podcast Unleashing Brilliance. Um, wonderful to welcome you to the show from wherever you are listening around the world and wherever you are listening to this from. It's fabulous to have you as a guest today. Um, I'm thrilled today to welcome to the show Corinne Amor. Um, Corinne, I had the joy of spending some fabulous time with um, when I was in Boston last year. And as always happens, the power of connection when uh, it happens unexpectedly, either over a yummy Mexican or walking along the river to the course that we were on, where you go really deep on your conversations, that's where you learn something that you hadn't learned before about someone's somebody's journey to where they're at. Corinne's whole purpose in life is about inciting people to play their bigger game through fearless leadership. And what she actually does is she works with leaders and organizations to realize the potential in their careers, their teams and their organizations to actually do more, to deliver more, to lead more so that change can actually happen. She is a dynamic speaker. She's written her fabulous books. She's often commenting in the media. And it was a real joy to get her uh, on today's show. Um, You're going to really love this conversation. We talk about uh, really what uh, Corinne learned uh, from the early days of her life when she was living uh, in a refugee camp in the jungle on the edge of a war zone. And in this episode, you'll hear some stories that she shares uh, that have really influenced the teaching and her IP that she delivers in her work today. Uh, She talks a lot about how without purpose, um, it's really hard to dig deep and find that resilience and why this is one of the core things in terms of doing the work that we want to do, about how to learn to expect the unexpected and as opposed to it taking you off kilter, the importance of just going into things with a willingness to change, to evolve, to pivot, to zig and to zag. And most importantly, how she learned about the courage to do things that are important to you. And she tells this beautiful story um, of how she met her husband and how he taught her that really key fearless leadership piece around having the courage to do the things that you uh, that are important to you so grab a cuppa make yourself comfortable um, and look forward to the conversation enjoy the conversation I had with the amazing Corinne Amor Corinne, welcome to today's podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you online. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank you, Janine. I'm excited to be here. I've listened to so many of the conversations you've had with other people, some that I know and some that I feel like I know once the convers- when, you know, once I've listened to the conversation. So I'm excited to be part of it. Oh, and I can't wait for us to be able to share some of your stuff. Um, we had... An amazing experience together um, last year. Um, we had the joy of spending um, 
couple of weeks at Harvard University together. And um, there were things we found out about each other, I think, during that time that despite knowing each other for years, we'd never had the chance to really have those deep conversations. And I think sometimes that's one of the key learnings that we rush from one conversation to another, that we actually fail to, to deeply connect and uh, understand each other's story. And it was really... Um, some of the stuff you shared on there that I went, I've got to share this this with the world. So um, thank you for gifting your time today. Um, so let's get started. So I'm curious. Um, well, first of all, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit more about what you're actually doing right now? What, what does Corinne bring to the world? I put at its most simple, I work with leaders and senior leadership teams to develop fearless leadership. So, this, you know, there's lots of really complex ways to describe that. For At its most simple, it's helping people and teams get out of their own way so that they can be the best that they can be. And then when you have leaders being the best that they can be, then you have everybody around them also is enabled to live and to be in that way. And in your mind, why, why is it so important right now that we adopt fearless leadership within our working environments? I think just on fearless, I think about this as fearing less rather than being the complete absence of fear. Because the only time you complete there's a complete absence of fear is, you know, you're probably dead or dead drunk, and neither of them are useful for leadership, you know, or for life. So it's about fearing less, and I I think courage is needed now. I, I even just think on a sort of a smaller current level, we're fairly near still the start of 2020. And yet in an Australian context, as well as a global context, it started out to be a challenging year for so many people. We've had bushfires, now we've got floods, we've got um, coronavirus, there's um, challenges in our political context, both within Australia and external. And it's very easy to think that that and I think things are just too hard. And yet yeah, right. we, we, we need courage and we need to hold on to our purpose. You know, what's the purpose that I'm here for? What's the purpose that we're here for? And use that to guide us. And fearlessness isn't about not having fear. It's about recognising that fear and using it as data. It, it really, it starts with a question. Like what's the question that we need to ask. What's the question that you know that I can ask you that uh, helps you to come into your best self? So I think that courage just starts often with a question, or as you say, with the conversation that goes deeper than our transactional, superficial conversations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Corinne. Now let's go back to where it all started. Um, during our, our lovely walk from the hotel to the Harvard Kennedy School for our day of learning, you started sharing with me um, some of your backstory. And I in particular want to talk about um, those early days and your time working at that jungle refugee camp on the edge of that war zone. Um, love to hear about how you ended up there, first of all. Um, and then obviously what it did taught you. What's that lasting impression that that, that whole experience has, le has left on you? Yeah. Uh, so how did I get there? I... 
uh, grew up in the country, regional Victoria. Uh, my parents gave up a lot to give me a really good education. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I got a great job. I did well. I had annual promotions, a lovely car, beautiful clothes. And I got to mm, probably my mid-20s when I realised that I'd never really made conscious decisions about these things. I just, this was the next step and the next step and the next step. And so I'd never chosen that consciously. And I, I thought if I leave this life and then I come back and choose it, that's okay. But just staying on a pathway because that's the trajectory that somehow, you know, I got faced in like a little wind-up toy that gets wound up and sent off in a particular direction across the toy room. That wasn't okay. So I um, actually took took 12 months leave without pay and with my sister who'd just finished university. So we were going to spend six months in Southeast Asia and six months in Africa, uh, but we never actually made it to Africa. And uh, I still haven't been to Africa, so that's still on my wish list. And um, I wanted to organise some volunteer work and this was in the time well before the concept, there was no concept of volunteer tourism. And it just didn't seem to be possible and I kept ending up, whatever um, I followed, I ended up with um, the Centre for, uh, sorry, with the uh, Australian Volunteers Abroad. And they wanted me to make a two-year commitment, which I wasn't willing to do, and so I ended up just going. And I was in Bangkok when I heard uh, that there was they were looking for English teachers on the Thai-Burmese border. And no one, this, so you know those rumours you hear, but no one can provide you with a source or any information about what that means. Yeah. So I got on a bus and I went to the, the town that looked like it was in the middle of the area where they, I, I had a sense there were refugee camps. And I, I was on this minibus that took me to this little town and the, I was the only person, the only foreigner on the bus. And the minibus driver said to me, oh, I take you my friend guest house. And I thought, oh, this could be <laughs> this could be bad, but I, I didn't have any options, so I said yes. Um, and he took turns out he took me to a guest house where um, foreign teachers who were working the area went on the weekends. And there was a girl there who'd had malaria and been quite sick, so she'd come to town for a few days to get some decent food to help her recover. And she was teaching, so she took me to a refugee camp that didn't have a teacher. So it was three hours round trip, um, oh, no, three hours one way, uh, in the back of a song tower, which in an Australian terms is a ute or a US language is a, is a pickup, you know, on the back of a pickup, and then a 20-minute walk along a narrow path into a refugee camp. And so she took me there and introduced me to the headmistress. Um, so the whole, all the camps are run by, um, by the refugees themselves, people from Burma. And she introduced me to the headmistress and I stayed and ended up resigning and staying, was away for more than two and a half years. So my original thought yeah, of, you yeah. know, I'm going to be back didn't, didn't happen. So that's how I ended up there. And I just, I remember the very first night. So they, there was a house that had been built a couple of years before um, where they, when they'd had a foreign teacher there. So, and, and by house, I mean all the houses were, made out of bamboo and had thatching, um, thatched leaf roofs. And so, anyway, the house in inverted commas. And, um, and so I'd been given dinner 
and it was starting to get dark and I just remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, you know, I'm sitting on the floor, I've eaten dinner, but now what do I do? Like what happens when the school's not running? I can't speak the language. Not many people can speak English. I'm on the edge of a war zone. And I just think, what, what am I doing here? You know, I'm just a kid who grew up in, in a sheltered life in Gippsland. How did I get here? And I became so afraid that I just completely froze and I lost track of time. And I don't know if I was sitting there for you know, minutes or seconds or even perhaps even up to an hour. I really don't know how long I was sitting there. And until this little girl came and she didn't speak English, but she smiled and she took my hand and she led me to a house where there were people and there was laughter. And that was the only time I was really deeply afraid. There was plenty of times when I was physically afraid, but that was the only time that I was really deeply afraid. And from then it was just an amazing, uh, amazing two and a half years of my life. So a couple of things you've talked about, you know, you, you said it with almost just a general conversation. I lived in a refugee camp two and a half years on the edge of a war zone. So when you talk about war zone, what, what actually was it like? Can you describe um, what it felt like or some of the experiences that, that actually for us to understand, you know, that the, the, what you were living within and what the people you were living amongst were experiencing at the time? So when I first moved there, it was actually very safe. So we were a small refugee camp. So there's about four and a half thousand people. Um, we were in the jungle. So we were in a valley. There was hills on either side. Um, it actually was very pretty. Um, everybody had little bamboo houses. You know, there often wasn't a lot of food, but um, and and people were people were very for, were very poor. But it was a happy place and it was a relatively safe place, despite the fact that there was people who, you know, kids who'd grown up in refugee camps and even some of the younger adults had grown up in refugee camps. Um, so there was lots of stories of sadness and lots of sadness underneath that. But on the surface, it was quite beautiful and, you know, rel- quite happy. Um, and the so I was with the Burmese Karen and they're an ethnic minority group who were, along with many other ethnic minority groups at the time, fighting against the Burmese government for um, democracy. And so the Karen army held a buffer zone right along the border where I was. So it was, it was actually pretty safe. And, and then there was an offensive probably eight months or so after I was there and the Burmese military wiped out the Karen resistance along that part of the border. So then it became less safe. Um, we were, I don't know, 20 minutes walk from the border and the border was a, a river. And, and theoretically in Thailand we were safe because we were on the Thai side of the border. But there was cross-border shelling. So one thing that happened after I'd been there for about a year, the next camp north from us, which was about five or six kilometres up the road, was shelled from the other side of the border. And when a shell hits the dry thatched roof leaf of a bamboo house, um, apart from wrecking the house, it starts a fire. And so the majority of the camp was burnt down in a really short time and there there were a couple of people killed. So then it became less safe. Um, We had bunkers under our houses, which, you know, when I think about it now is probably pretty silly because all that means is that you've got a hole 
uh, you know, that you can sit in under your house, but when you're being shelled and the shells go straight through the roof, it doesn't make much difference anyway. Um, So, um, and there was a time where there were rumours that foreigners working in the area were being targeted. And so I was the only foreigner in the camp where I was. We had um, Medicine Sans Frontier came in once or twice a week um, to um, to work in the clinic. So there were other foreigners from time to time in the camp, but mostly I was the only one there. A couple of times I had other people come and work with me for a couple of months at a time. And so the headmistress and the head of the camp wanted me to move around and not sleep in my house. They wanted me to stay in different houses every night to make sure that I was safe, but I wasn't willing to do that. If I'm going to live in that level of fear, then I'm just not going to be here. So I said no. It turns out I was fine. I came back safely. But my my poor mother at the time, and I didn't get this, but I have two kids of my own now, so I get this. Um, I get it now. But my mother found all of this quite worrying. This was before phones and internet communication, mobile phones. And so my mum used to listen to the SBS news and at the time there was quite a bit of news around Burma, particularly when there was a major offensive, and um, mum would listen there and get the news. And then if there wasn't any news, she'd ring the Asia desk at SBS to find out what other news they had that they didn't read. So she got to know the SBS news team, my poor mother. Yeah, as as parents, we uh, that's what we do, isn't it? They go missing now. When you can't track them on your phone for thirty seconds, it's like, where are they? That's Let right. Alone, Where's uh, my poor mother? mother? I used to I used to go to town once a month and ring my mum reverse charges. Oh, oh my gosh! Now, um, you met your husband on in that camp, didn't you? I did. Well, I met him on the border the very first weekend I was there. So finished teaching on Friday night. Friday afternoon, and I remember thinking, okay, right, now what happens? And then I heard this voice that sounded so Aussie that obviously, you know, I must have been imagining it, was something like, hey, Aussie chick. And I I didn't quite understand (laughs) where's that voice coming from. It turns out, and I looked out, there was two guys, a British guy and an Australian guy, walking up the hill towards my house with a sack over their back because when you travel in in the jungle, you take food. And so they bought some pumpkins and some potatoes. And, um... And they had heard that there was a new teacher in the area and they'd come from a camp a bit south um, to stay oh, overnight and show me the ropes, which was, was just brilliant. Doing? And what was he um, doing there? So Minthane was a guerrilla fighter. He said he, he was... Minthane? Yeah. He, he, he was a guerrilla fighter when I first met him. So these two blokes took me to a village just inside Burma, which was an illegal border crossing that was quite easy to do over summer. And I met Minthane there. So he'd been um, he'd been a guerrilla fighter. So he was involved in democratic uprisings in Burma in 1989, similar to what happened in Tiananmen Square in China in 88. Uh, and so he had been a university student then and then had fled to the border and had been fighting for many years and then had been hit um, with a shrapnel of a 70 millimetre mortar and his leg, so spent a really long, painful 12 months in a jungle hospital recovering um, and then couldn't fight anymore. So he was teaching in a school just on the other side of the border. So I met him then and we were friends for about a year and then sort of the relationship shifted and things got more complicated and, yeah, the the, the short yeah, story is a bit, he came back to us, came to Australia and... Um, 
and now we have two children. That's fabulous. Now, I'm curious because you talk a lot about the stuff you learnt whilst living uh, in that village, in the jungle, in the refugee yeah. camp, in the jungle, uh, at the edge of that war zone. What are, what are some of the lessons that you learnt from that experience of living there um, under, I'm imagining, very different conditions than you yeah. grow up in, in country Victoria, um, that you are now bringing into your work? What are some of the key lessons that you learn? Um, I learned... I learned lots of really useful skills like how to wash my clothes by hand and <laughs> things like that that you just don't think about here, but they're not, they're not directly relevant to my work in leadership. I think one of the most important lessons that I learned was the importance of purpose. Um, and if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, it's very hard to stay in it when the going gets tough. And and I, th I think about Minthane, he led a platoon of men and when you ask him, you know, how did you do it? How do you motivate people every day to put their life on the line, which is effectively what, what they were doing? And it, it comes back to purpose. What's important? Why are you doing this? What are your beliefs that drive what you're doing? So I think that the, the, the importance of purpose and a shared purpose within a team it's probably one of the key things I learned. Um, on a personal level, I think one of the things that I learned, and I think that carries through into any time you work with people, is to expect the unexpected. Yeah. And I would wake up in the morning and my kids would have told me, my students would have told me what's going to happen today. And then so I had this picture of what that would look like, like it's, it, we're going to have sports activities tomorrow. I would have a picture of what that would be. So I would go knowing what it was all about and realising that actually I had no idea that none of the pictures that I had matched what was actually going on. And I see that so often in, in workplaces. We get we have some sort of communication. It might be words, it might be a gesture, it might be a conversation. And we form a picture of what that means and then we continue as if that picture were the truth. But so often it's not. It's just a version of the possibilities. Mm. Um, so I think and I, courage, just courage to the courage to do the things that are important for you. And really that started for me right back when I was considering going overseas, had a really good career. I had money saved up to buy a house. I was ready. In fact, I'd been on the housing market looking and so many people gave me really well-meaning bad advice around I'd never get such a good job again. You know, what was I doing to my career? And it, what I thankfully had the awareness to realise is that their advice wasn't serving me. It was serving them. And something that I was doing was challenging, you know, their sense of what was what was possible for them. So it's just that conviction to back back your own judgment is so important. So when you talk about those lessons that you that you learn at that refugee camp in terms of purpose, expecting the unexpected, the courage to do things that are important to you. Um, how do you see that playing out today with some of the client work you do? What do you see happening where almost if people could get that learning, things would improve? Have you yeah. got some examples? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about an executive team I'm working with at the moment and there's 
this organization has a strong social purpose and all of the executives have a, a very strong personal and professional commitment to that purpose. And so that's, that's really powerful. And I see that as a strong contrast to other organizations I work with where the leadership team doesn't have such a strong sense of shared purpose. So that's an example where having a clear purpose that we all understand, that we all agree to, and that aligns with our personal sense of, of what's important, our personal purpose, how powerful that is. Mm. Um, and I courage just plays out every day in so many ways. From things as small as do I have the courage to speak, to, to offer you feedback? Do I have the courage to offer you feedback that I believe will serve you and will serve in us, in our relationship and our team, and yet I'm worried what if you don't take it well, what if I'm not able to express it well, what if that impacts the dynamic, what if you take it out on me? And and so just having the courage to have open, honest conversations, which sounds so simple, and yet at the executive level so often doesn't happen. Um, so there's courage at that small, what I think is a fairly small level, right through to the courage to commit to um, in a significant commercial decisions that may or may not have a guaranteed success. That's cool. What's the most courageous thing that you've done, Corinne? Um, I didn't think it was courageous at the time, but I think in hindsight, having kids, if I had known about how hard it was and how much constantly I would need to evaluate my own performance, <laughs> I think I, I think that. But um, probably the most courageous thing that I've done in the moment, you know, that I've thought required conscious courage in the moment was leaving the corporate world and starting my own business. Mm. Mm. I remember I had a massive um, sleep. The day I made that decision, I had a, a massive sleepless night that night. Yes, I can appreciate. What were you What were you having that sleepless night about? Can you remember what you were worrying yeah, about? Yeah, I can. We um, Both my girls are adopted and so we had just adopted my our second child and so I was on six months parental leave or 12 months parental leave. I was on parental leave anyway. And... Um, at that time, we changed accountants. So I'd gone to the accountant. And he said, look, um, you know, don't worry about your child. Just bring her. She can crawl around on the boardroom floor, which she did. I met with the accountant and he said, okay, so there's two proposed structures for you. And there's this one or there's this one. And they both, you know, from an accounting sense, they both look fine to me. And I said, well, you know, what's your recommendation? And he said, well, it depends if you're a PAY employee. Because if you're a PAY employee, then it's this one. Whereas if you're solely self-employed, it's this one. And I hadn't decided yet whether I was going to go back from parental leave. And I heard myself say, I'm not a PAY employee. And he said, okay, right, then this is your structure. And um, so, I, okay, right. So we went through that conversation and I got back in the car and I drove home and I just remember thinking, saying to myself, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, I'm the primary income, income earner. I'm the primary caregiver. I've just given up a really good job that I enjoy. I've given up that security for all of this insecurity and and so it was actually a fear of what if I couldn't make it work given our family was it was resting on me mm. 
Yeah. Um, and luckily I had one sleepless night tonight and since then it's been fine. That was, I don't know, that was 12 years ago, 11 years ago. So we're all right. <laughs> You've done all right. You've done all right. We haven't gone hungry. Um, and who, when you think about all of the people that you've met through all the incredible experiences uh, that you have had here and overseas, who do you think would you say has been one of the most influential people in your world? Um, I think Minthane definitely, my husband, uh, putting him aside because I wouldn't want him to hear that, um, putting him aside. Um, Russ Reckner was a man who, um, a manager and mentor who I had um, probably mid-career and he was an amazing man um, and I learnt, I learnt a lot from him. And another person that I've learned a lot from that I've worked with is Noor Tumla, who was the, the Karen headmistress who I worked with in the refugee camp. She was an incredible leader. What about her when you think about her? What do you remember about her? Uh, selflessness. She had the ability um, because of her connections to leave the camp and to create a better life for herself and her family somewhere else. And she didn't. She worked tirelessly for the benefit of her people and her community. Um, so that that selflessness and, again, that really strong sense of purpose, uh, her ability to connect with people, that she, she connected with people on so many different levels and was able to garner them around, the, um, around what needed to be done. So they were, and through all of this, she had a wicked sense of humour. So stuff was always fun with Tumblr. It was hard work, but it was, and it was always fun. That's just, and what about your husband? You talk about him being one of the most influential people. What's he taught you? Uh, he's taught me, I think, secondhand a lot of what he learned in the jungle. Like that, the, the resilience, um, the importance of purpose, how you can create a psychologically safe place even when physically it's very unsafe. Oh, tell me more. How do you do that? Well, that's the power of that human connection. Like as a guerrilla fighter, everything is uncertain. You're a small a small team. You're outnumbered by a, a bigger, a typically much well better resourced army. You don't know where they're going to come from. You need to think quickly, act nimbly, and you need to be able to avoid the constant threat of overwhelm. And the way you do that is to really connect with people, to understand them, to see them, to unite them around purpose, and that contributes to creating a psychologically safe space. And from your opinion, I know there's a lot of talk about this concept of psychological safety. Um, why, why is it so important right now in the world that we're living in? Because what you've described there as the life of your husband as a guerrilla fighter, actually you could replace with day-to-day -day life, right, <laughs> in terms Absolutely. of whether you're in your own business, yeah. you're running a crazy family, you're operating in a corporate environment. Well, why is it so important? Because I think that's the support that we have. Like the, the human connections is the support that we have that we can offer. It's free. Like it, it doesn't cost us anything to be better 
with and for other people. And as you say, you know, in our own lives, we're, we're faced with overwhelm. In, a, in our corporate worlds, we're trying to do so much more with less um, from a resource perspective. Now, it's funny, if I work with a not-for-profit sector, they say to me, oh, you know, it's different here than it would be in the corporate sector because we don't have much resource. And, and I say, no, it's not. You know, I'm not. I'm not working with any leadership team right now who says we don't know what to do with all the resource that we have, whether that's money or time or people. Like everybody is trying to do more with less. And you can only do that when you're the people around you, when your leadership team, when the people under them, the whole organisation has bought in can and, and is able to bring themselves to work fully, is able to say, I've seen this thing over here, it's dangerous. You know, we should be doing something about that or challenging an idea that everyone else is nodding wisely to because nobody either thinks it's worth disagreeing or dares to disagree. We need to bring the best of ourselves together so that we can get the best outcomes and we don't get the best outcomes when we've just got shadows of people working with us. That's absolutely right. I think uh, I couldn't agree more. If people are faking it till they make it or not feeling brave enough to challenge what they are seeing or brave enough to be who they want to be, then how can we possibly expect the people around us to do that too? So this this webinar, this whole conversation is all about this concept of unleashing brilliance either your own brilliance or that brilliance in others what what does that concept mean to you Corinne what does this this phrase of unleashing brilliance mean to you in the work that you're doing and how you're living your life my my mission is to help people and communities live up to their potential through leadership And the thing that drives me crazy is waste. And and going back to my experience in the jungle, and I think that's what's you know what enraged me so much about that. When you've got hundreds of thousands of people living in a refugee camp around a country, some people say that's a political problem. I say that's a problem of leadership, and it's a massive waste of human potential. And I think unleashing brilliance is the opposite of that. It's let's help people see their their potential because not everyone sees their own potential help them see it and then support and challenge them to live into that potential and I think that's what unleashing brilliance is I love it love it now going back to those influential people in your life if I could grab them and bring them onto this podcast so that teacher at the school your husband Russ what what would you say to them today Ah, uh, I think I've got tears in my eyes thinking in particular about Russ because he left us a couple of years ago. Um, I think I would just say thank you and I hope that the impact that you've had on me I am able to have on other people. Well, you absolutely are in the work that you're doing. Um, my last question for you is... Um, you know, we often get asked and we often ask our children or the people around you, what do you want to achieve? Who do you want to be when you grow up? My question for you, Corinne, is is what do you want to be remembered for or who do you want to be remembered as? I would like my, I think the first one is my children. Um, 
I have such strong positive memories of my parents and how they've influenced me and supported me and still do. Um, and I, so I think I would like my children to say she was a brilliant mother, um, whatever brilliant means to them. And I reckon <laughs> right now I have a 13 year old and I don't know that I'm here. I don't think she would say that very often at the moment. It's more likely, you know, I'm ruining her life. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll get through that. <laughs> um, and, and professionally, I'd like to be remembered as, as somebody where people could say I was a better person because I worked with Corinne, knew Corinne, talked to Corinne. Corinne, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you this morning. Thank you for your openness, your vulnerability, uh, for taking us back into that jungle all those years ago and um, sharing with us how actually in reality it's all the same, the same experiences, the same leadership lessons. And um, your point about actually amongst all of the chaos, all of the change, um, all of the fear, whether it's real or not real, um, and you could argue today right now maybe, you know, much of the fear that we're all feeling is, is not real at all. It's just driven by the media. But amongst all of that, one of the most important pieces is this ability to connect as human beings, um, to know why we're doing what we're doing. And within that, each of us individually to have the courage to actually do what is important to you. And um, I'm an absolute believer of your work. I support it 100% because I truly believe that if we can get more people having the courage to do what's important to them, then our world, our work environments, our organizations, our leadership, our teams, our families will all become a better place. And isn't that what we all want? Absolutely. So thank you for your time, Corinne. It's been thank awesome. Thank you, Janine. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.